there are a lot of characters, a lot of individuals in this story, in, in, at this time in the story. And, and I think Gonzalez uh, in that book actually covers them way better than I could uh, with our short amount of time or if I had all night. Uh, he, he does a better job. So uh, what I thought was, what would Ulrich Zwingli prefer me to talk about would he rather me talk to you about him or what he thought was really important, which is the word? And, and so I, I want us to kind of enter into the, the, the lead up and the arrival of the, the Reformation sort of through this analogy of the book of Judges. Uh, so if you, if you think back to your Old Testament, uh, what was the problem in the nation of Israel during the time of the judges? If, if you could sum that up, if one verse comes to mind, what would that be? What was the problem in Israel at that time? That's right. It's from Judges 17. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And, and so what do we see in Israel? Uh, well, the reality is they actually did have a king, Yahweh, He presents himself in the Pentateuch as the king uh, who has, uh, in the Exodus, reclaimed his people for himself. He actually has given them his word. He's given them his law. Uh, Israel, during the time of Judges, has the Pentateuch. They have the the books of the law. They have the the testimonies of Moses. Uh, Everything from Genesis right through Deuteronomy. They have it. But they're not listening to it. Uh, and so in the, the book of Judges, what do you see? You see this downward spiral of disobedience that's punctuated at times by the faithfulness of God. But, but during those times of disobedience, that the, the book of Judges, just, it's a cycle after cycle of this. Uh, of this. Uh, the, the people abandon the Lord. Trouble comes. They cry out, and the Lord provides a deliverer for them. The cycle repeats over and over. But in the darkest times, what do you see Israel do? In Judges 2, you see Israel running after the gods of Canaan. They, they abandon Yahweh for the gods of the world around them. By the end of the story, in Judges 19, you see pervasive sexual sin uh, infiltrating the, the nation of Israel. You, you see uh, a Levite, what was it? a Levite taking a concubine for himself. He he actually isn't serving in uh, in the tabernacle. He's sort of a freelance Levite, which there was no prescription for in in the word of the Lord. So you see uh, the the faithfulness of God in raising up these deliverers and raising up these judges. But as soon as that judge dies. The, The people go back to their disobedience. Every man does what's right in their own eyes. Uh, Which, honestly, I mean, we could say the same thing about the judges. I mean, just look at that group of human beings, and you'll see some deeply flawed people. Uh, You you see a left-handed assassin. You see a sex-addicted Nazarite. Uh, Just craziness uh, in in the, the nation of Israel. So, uh, if you were able to, to do the reading uh, from Gonzalez, especially that first chapter, what kind of parallels can we draw between Israel at the time of the judges and 
this pre-Reformation era Europe? Well, let's, let's get into some of the details uh, as we think about Europe kind of on the cusp of the Reformation. What, what was true for them? What was true for the church at that time? They had, as we have, a risen and ascended king. They have his word in the scriptures. And what you see is a church whose popes and priests and bishops are quite content to do whatever's right in their own eyes. The, the, the similarities are striking because you see the, the popes in particular uh, running after the gods of Europe, just like Israel running after the gods of Canaan. The popes are running after the gods of Europe. What are the gods of Europe? What are the gods of Western civilization? It's power. It's prestige. It's honor for self. And the popes are following these very things. Uh, it, you know, the, the vicar of Christ, as the popes were called, it is actually looking a lot more like the, the kings of the earth. Levying taxes. Well, the king is going to take your money. The, the pope is going to take your money and give you this promise of forgiveness if he does it. It's a, it's a very secular way of living, thinly veiled with Christian language. But the basis for which is nowhere in the word of the true king, the, the risen king, Jesus. Uh, Gonzalez also points out this pervasive sexual sin. Now, we would say that the chastity vows of the, the, the priests were we're thoroughly unbiblical. We, we don't think that that's binding. We don't think that's a special kind of spirituality that, that, uh, that the priests are supposed to exhibit. Uh, and yet those who did take vows are flagrantly breaking them, uh, as, as Gonzalez points out, flaunting their illegitimate children uh, around as if it's no small thing for them to have a child out of wedlock. Because never mind the unbiblical chastity vow, they're very clearly uh, having children outside of the context that the Lord has designed for it. And, and it's all viewed as, uh, as a fairly small thing. So uh, you have this, this wider culture that is changing, but you, you have this incredible darkness even within the church uh, of Christ. Um, and so what you see is if the the popes and the priests are ignoring the word of the Lord, then what are the people going to do? Later in Israel's story, the, the saying that we would, when you look at uh, Samuel and Chronicles and, and so forth, as goes the king, so goes the people. When the, the shepherds of the church are unfaithful shepherds, how can the sheep know how to live? Especially as the word of the Lord is kept from them. So, you go to Mass uh, as a peasant. You can't understand a single word that's being said because it's all in Latin. If you, as it's already been mentioned, if you pick up a copy of the Scriptures, which they probably wouldn't let your grubby hands touch it, uh, you won't be able to read it because it's in Latin. You won't have any access to the Word of the Lord that is the source of life for the people of God. And the, so the word was kept from the people, as I would also point out briefly, the, the Lord's Supper was largely kept from the, the hands of the people at that time. 
the, the Lord's Supper would, would be celebrated every week in the Mass. The Eucharist uh, would be given every week, but generally only the priest would take it on behalf of the people. So the people are being kept from the Lord's table. They're being kept from this promise of God to nourish and sustain his people as they look to him in faith. Now, they might be able to take it once a year, but even then, at times, they would only get the bread. The cup would be withheld from them because what if they spilled a drop? Because the theological outworking of transubstantiation is this is the blood of Christ that is in this cup. What if it spills on the ground? So they keep it from the people. They keep the word. They keep the sacraments away from the people. Uh, the word itself in, in some of the translations that they were working with was marred with additions. Uh, uh, Gonzalez points out that as some scholars were coming from the east with older manuscripts uh, with them, people began to realize things have been added in to this word, uh, things that don't belong to the Lord. They're, they're obviously the interpolations of man uh, meant to sustain some agenda or or, or something, or maybe even done in, with good intentions, but it's still not the word of the Lord. So the word of the king was ignored, and the teachings of men were revered. Uh, that, that's what was the norm. So what's at stake? What's at stake if that's reality for you? If you don't hear the word of your king... If you don't know what he would have of you, truly what he would have of you, then what's at stake here? It's nothing short of the gospel. The the very gospel is at stake. And so uh, as we hear about some of these uh, forerunners of the Reformation, men like Huss and Wycliffe, uh, the Valdensians, These are the people in the, well, the Valdensians were, I think, in the 1200s, if I remember right. They're actually people who are translating the word of God into the the languages of the people. And everywhere you see that happening, you begin to see revival happening. You, You begin to see, you're watching people who are rediscovering the gospel and hearing about a God of grace who says that forgiveness comes not because of the good works that they have done or might do. Forgiveness comes because Christ shed his blood and he's been risen, he's, he's been raised from the dead and, and he's ascended and he reigns as a faithful high priest to take care of his people. Everywhere you see that happening, people returning to the word of the Lord, you see life returning. And so... Uh, the, the word of the Lord is, is really one of the, the foundational aspects, obviously, for the Reformation. Uh, later on, you're, you're going to hear about Luther and Calvin and, and probably a little bit more about Zwingli as well. Uh, all these uh, people who were saying, what we need is to hear our king speak, and then we need to respond to that. Um, uh, in, in this book that uh, I'll pass around uh, in just a little bit, not, not quite yet, uh, it, it, it really captures, I, I think, one of the, the, uh, a couple of the fundamental questions that were really churning in the minds of the Reformers. Uh, the, the first 
is how does God speak to his people? Well, think Hebrews 1. At many times and in many different ways, God spoke you know, through prophets and in all these ways, giving his word. But in these last days, he's spoken through his son. If you ask the question, how does God speak to us? How does God communicate himself to us? The answer is through Christ. Well, that, leads, that led the reformers to the next question. Okay, then how does Christ communicate himself to us? How does Christ communicate his grace to us? And the answer they discovered in the word was very different than the way Rome answered that question. Rome answered the question, how does Christ communicate himself and his grace to his people? How does Christ do that? Rome's answer was the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. Well, (laughs) you and I wouldn't have gotten that. Uh, but the reformers saw in the scriptures the answer Christ communicates himself to his people in the word and in the sacraments and we've only got two by the way not the seven that, that Rome has so how does Christ communicate himself and his grace to his people it's through the word and the sacrament so let's, let's talk a little bit about the word and we'll speak very briefly about the sacraments So, uh, obviously, it's been mentioned the printing press went a really long way in helping to to get the word into the hands of the people. But you see Luther, you see Calvin, you you see all of these people translating the scriptures from the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, translating it into the language of the people so that the people could embrace the word for themselves. Because what else are the reformers seeing? In the scriptures, they're, they're recognizing this principle, the priesthood of all believers, that there is no sacred, secular distinction in the church, really in the entire world. That's sort of a different issue. But they're, they're recognizing that if God has given his Holy Spirit to every one of his children, then every one of his children has the right to hear the word of God and have the Spirit apply it to their hearts, helping them to read it, to hear it, and then to believe it, and then to live out of that belief, to live out of that faith. So the, the church of the Savior, the church of the King, was recovering the gospel by returning to the source. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not clever. I don't remember the Latin. Ad fontes. Uh, they're recovering the, the very gospel that the church had lost in so many different ways. They're recovering it by going back to the source. So what would it mean then to be reformed according to the word of God? We talk about being reformed churches or embracing reformed theology. That can carry a lot of baggage. Can carry, it can mean a lot of different things to us now. But at the time, to be reformed, it's to be reformed according to the word which means we're, we're actually willing to carve out all these traditions that have been added on. We're willing, to, we're willing to sacrifice every single one of those if it stands in opposition to the word. And most of them did. Uh, well, I would say a great many of them did. So, to be, what, so then what does it mean to be reformed according to the word of God? Well, it means submitting to the king by submitting to his word. Think about this. Listen to a few of these passages, uh, uh, actually all of them from the Apostle John's writings. 
Whoever is of God hears the words of God. This is Jesus speaking. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. From John 10. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. John 18, Jesus speaking with Pilate. Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The people of the king listen to the king. They listen to his words. And he speaks to his people through the spirit of truth. He speaks to his people through the word. What else can we build our lives on but the word of the king? And if we try to build on something else, we're, we're building on ashes. We're building on sand. So if we would recognize that to be reformed according to the word of God means submitting to the king through submitting to his word. Well, okay, then what does the king say? And this is where we would get into the, the five solas of the Reformation. Now, the, the scripture alone, that first one there, sola scriptura, that, that's really the foundational principle. Uh, we can go to many passages that, well, we just did really, as we talk about what it means to listen to the voice of the king. But if you think about passages like Romans 3, uh, all the passages that are up there, each one of those is, is just one little sample of, of the entire uh, story of redemption, where we see that that in order to be saved, it's always been by faith and by faith alone. Look back to Abraham. That's what Paul does in Romans 4. But, but you see it all the way back in Genesis, where Abraham believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. You see, it's always been by grace. Again, back to the example of Abraham. If you read Genesis 11, Abraham is the absolute last person on the face of this earth that should be chosen to receive the the blessings of God, to receive his promises. He was an idol worshiper. We we learn later in scriptures. He, He was probably, at the time when God called him, he was probably worshiping the moon god in Ur of the Chaldees. It's always been by grace. It's never been about works to save us. In Acts 4, Peter says, there's no other name given unto men by which we can be saved. It's Christ alone is the hope of our salvation. He is, if we think of the scriptures as the story of redemption, as one big story, not a bunch of little stories pieced together, but as one big story of God's good creation, of, of it fallen by man's rebellion, of, of God's promise to redeem it. And then the coming consummation where all things are united in Christ once again. Christ is the climax of that story and everything hinges on him. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. It's by Christ alone that we're saved. So... Who do we need 
as our mediator between us and God? Do we need uh, saints? Do we need the Pope in Rome? Do we, do we even need our parish priest to stand between us and God? Or do we need Christ and Christ alone? We need Christ and Christ alone. And then if, if we think about, again, the story of redemption, what is it all moving toward? What, what's, what's the end of it all supposed to be? What's the purpose of, of this incredible work of redemption that God planned from eternity past? Well, it's the glory of God. And so whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God because it's his glory, it's his weightiness that is the purpose of our existence. Our, our confessional standards ask the question, what's the chief end of man? What, what is the chief purpose of human beings? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So those are the words of the king that, that we hear from the scriptures. Uh, Philip Melanchthon uh, in 1554, uh, just to kind of comment on the fact that you don't see the reformers uh, typically pulling all, these, all five of these together at the same time. They're usually kind of pieced around throughout their works. Um, uh, only in the 20th, 20th century did we really recognize that, uh, at, like in Calvin's works, for example, you really do see each of these elements, but they weren't really codified in this way until much later on. Um, but but to, you can hear in the words of uh, Melanchthon himself uh, speaking to God, only by grace do you justify, and only by faith are we justified. He's He's pulling together faith alone and grace alone into one beautiful concept, into one beautiful sentence. So, if you would call yourself reformed today, uh, uh, one who follows reformed theology, this is really what you're talking about. Uh, These these basic elements, these five solas of the Reformation. Uh, Obviously, we, we can branch out into some other uh, areas of theology like covenant theology or uh, things like that that are, are, are kind of expansions on this, extensions of this. I'm not quite sure what the right word is for that. Uh, but, um, but, but really from all these things, we, we begin to understand the basics of the faith, the, the fundamental, the essential elements of the faith. Uh, we would have to talk at another time about the secondary issues that even Christians can disagree on and that we're supposed to be charitable toward each other uh, regarding. But but what are those essential elements? Like I mentioned Luther saying, uh, well, and, and even Paul, if the gospel is at stake, uh, our, our language is going to be stronger, our fight is going to be harder, our resistance is going to be up, and rightfully so. So what would we say are those essential elements? Well, I'm, I'm actually uh, going to give you a, a little bit of, uh, a, a, of an idea of how we would answer that, your, your brothers and sisters in the PCA, uh, if we can go to the next slide. Uh, might be a little bit hard to see, so I'll just read them out and, and just kind of go through these in, uh, briefly. 
what do we think are the essential elements? Well, if I could sum up the first three questions in, in one word each, it's guilt, grace, gratitude. Uh, and that's actually nothing new. The, the Dutch reformers were way ahead of this. If you read Heidelberg Catechism, uh, it, it's all over this. Uh, so uh, for any, anybody who wants to join our church, and this is, these are the vows for our entire denomination, this is, this is it. This is what we think the gospel is. Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? All you have to do is say, I do. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? I do. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? I do. In those first three in particular, we, we see the summary of the gospel, what was recovered uh, uh, in the scriptures, in the words of the king himself. Now, now, these last two questions are kind of the outworking of number three, uh, having to do with promising, promising to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability, submitting yourself to the government and discipline of the church, and promising to study or work toward it's purity and peace. Those are really outworkings of the, the third vow. But we would say even those things themselves are, are required of us by the king. You, you don't get to be an independent Christian. You are brought into the community of the Savior. You are you're not. There is no such thing as a solo Christian. Not really. Because you've been engrafted into the body. And, and, and he calls us to live that out in our lives. We saw something very similar to these questions Sunday morning. We had a number of people join in our church. And Excellent. They took these types of vows very similar, aren't they? Excellent. Yeah, it's beautiful. some of the wording is identical. Yeah. So they, they stole them from us. The <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We, we stole a lot of things from a lot of people. Um, okay, so, so back briefly then, back to the, the, the question. How does Christ communicate himself and his grace to his people? Well, it's through the word. And so if we're going to be people of Christ, we have to be people of the word. But remember, the reformers answered that he communicates in the word and sacraments. Uh, And so you you see in in the reformers this recovery of the sacraments, really a paring down uh, back to baptism and the Lord's Supper. So Rome had gone into its usual excess. They, they had seven sacraments. Uh, things that we would say are good and beautiful, things that we find in the scriptures, but things that were not instituted by Christ himself, whereas with baptism and the Lord's Supper, they are given to us by Christ, begun by Christ himself. And in all these other sacraments, uh, I, I mean, things like marriage and ordination, uh, final unction, which is basically last rites, uh, all these things, what you don't see in those that you do see in baptism and the Lord's Supper is the gospel itself in visible form. It, in, in marriage, you don't see the body and the blood of the Savior. You don't see his death and his resurrection on display. Now, we would say in 
you know, from Ephesians 5, Christ and his church, we, we see what our marriages are supposed to look like. Not knocking that. I think that's a good thing. But the, the death and the resurrection of Christ aren't on display like they are in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, perhaps another time we could go into, into more depth there. I, I wanted very briefly to, uh, and we'll have it out. I know we're running late. Um, there's a book over here called Christ and Architecture. Uh, and, and it's specific to uh, Reformed and, and even Presbyterian churches uh, in terms of its history. Uh, but, but what you see is the Reformers sort of following along with the Renaissance, seeing that, that Christ, the, the, the gospel is actually meant to impact and influence everything. Uh, and so you see the, the gospel, you see a th- uh, their theology being applied really in, in diverse ways, including in their architecture. And, and it raises some, some kind of interesting questions for us. Uh, now, Rome actually displayed their theology and their architecture as well. Uh, remember, we asked the question, uh, or, or Rome answered the question, how does Christ communicate himself to his people? Well, they answered through the Eucharist. What do you think is the focal point of a Roman Catholic church? Communion. It's the Sorry. altar. Yeah. yeah. Which, which uh, things have sort of changed now. They, they'll refer to it as a table. But right. before the Reformation, it was an altar. Because you understand in the Mass, Christ is being sacrificed once again. He's being crucified again in the Mass. Uh, I mean, that's the dogma of the church. That's what they believe. But the Reformers, when they, shall we say, inherited some of these uh, Roman churches in in certain lands, uh, what you see them doing is coming in and they're tearing out the altar and they're replacing it with a table. Because Christ isn't being sacrificed. Hebrews tells us he was sacrificed once for all. That, that bloody rite is done. What it is now is a meal where God and his people sit down at the table together. And they fellowship over the, over the body and the blood of Christ. And, and yet it's his spiritual body. Now some of the reformers are going to argue about that a little bit. And, and that will be for later on. But, but what you see the Reformers beginning to do is reflecting in their architecture what they believe. If they believe that Christ communicates himself to his people in the word and in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, what you see is in the front of the church, uh, elevated pulpits, because Christ communicates through his word. In the Roman churches, if they had a, a pulpit, it was really more of a lectern, and it would be often very small and off to the side. But in... In the Reformation, you get these big, imposing pulpits that are elevated. <laughs> I mean, not just a little bit, but, but head and shoulders, feet over the heads of the congregation so that everybody is sitting under the word of the king. You see the, the, the table for communion. It, you even see the baptismal font leaving the back of the church where it was in the Roman churches and moving to the front of the church. Because Rome said baptism is the entryway But then it's often neglected. It's often left behind. But the Reformers say, no, if you have been baptized in the Christ, you have been united to him. And that is every single moment of every single day. And so when you come here and worship, you need to look at this baptismal font. And you need to remember that you have been baptized. When Luther would struggle with sin, 
when he would face severe temptation, he would hunker down and he would say to himself, I have been baptized. He's not just talking about water being put on him. He's talking about being united with Christ. And the comfort that he took from that is what the reformers were putting in front of the congregation every single week. It's what they wanted to learn. I said I'd I'd be brief on that point. Uh, I'll just simply leave it with this. Architecture always communicates something. It's just a matter of what. Is your architecture communicating truth, uh, God's truth, God's word, or is it communicating something else? Uh, It's a question that we in the church have to wrestle with. I think now, because after World War II, man, American evangelical uh, churches, we, we got utilitarian with our architecture. Well, you know, call it good stewardship if you want to, but <laughs> there, there's something about space that impacts us. You, you feel it. But when you go into a, even just a, a grand theater, uh, it, it changes you. It has an impact on, on us. All right, so, uh, so what about today? Well, one of the, the battle cries of the Reformation really needs to be our cry today, and that is reformed and always reforming. We don't get to rest on laurels. We don't get to be comfortable. What we get is to be constantly examined by the word of the king. The word of God is meant to always be changing us because we have no idea how deep sin goes in us. We have no idea how profoundly we've been corrupted and affected, twisted by it. Even when we think we're doing well, even when we think we're being faithful, Jesus says we're still unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. And so the question for us is what are the areas in our lives, individually, corporately, as uh, as Grace Community Church, what, and, and really the church wider than that, the, the entire body of Christ, how do we need to be reformed by the Word of God? Because our hearts are exactly like those who came before us. If you're looking back at Israel in the book of Judges, uh, I can't sit on a high horse and look down at them. Uh, I can't do that to those who lived in the Roman church in the years leading up to the Reformation, I, I probably would have been following right along with them because my own heart is pulled after power and prestige and the honor of men. The call for us is to always be reformed according to the word of the king in our worship, in our daily lives, in our work, in our art, in our music, in our drama, in, in every aspect of life. We're called to be reformed according to the word of God. I guess I can't really say, I can't end without saying this, that that really what this calls us to then is is really living lives of of constant repentance and faith in Christ. Uh, Because if we turn reforming our lives and our worship and every aspect, if we we turn that into uh, our good works... And we can do that. Our hearts are capable of turning even good things into things that kill us. If our hearts lean that way, then what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to run back 
to the faithful king who died for his people. Uh, at, at all times, in every season of life, in every moment of every day, we're, we're called to repent and to believe in the gospel of Jesus that, that says Christ died and Christ has risen and Christ is coming again and he's making all things new. And the kingdom of God has already broken into this world and it's coming in its fullness. And, and you and I as unworthy sinners have been brought in because of the blood of Christ and we've been given his righteousness. Uh, it's been credited to us anyway. Uh, and that's our only hope. It's our only comfort in life and in death uh, is that we belong to him. That's what it means for us, first and foremost. Uh, that's what it means for us to be reformed today, is that we're always repenting and always believing in him. Thank you, Sam. Uh, I knew we wouldn't be disappointed uh, by all that you had to bring us tonight. Um, I, I guess <clears throat> throughout all of your, what you were presenting with us, uh, the question keeps coming to my mind, which is the theme for tonight that I want to bring out for you, is... What's your authority? Because if you go back a couple of slides to the, the one that had the, uh, the five solas, what was the one at the top? It was sola scriptura. All the others relied upon the authority of, of scripture. Um, when we look at uh, those humanists uh, or, or the priests and the popes, they, they had to answer with, with different questions. Uh, Erasmus wanted to reform the church not so much the theology, but the morality. And that may be because maybe since he didn't break with the Church of Rome, his authority was Scripture and Scripture and the Pope, or Scripture and um, the, the sacraments. Whereas the Reformers, and those of us who are still Reformed and Reforming, need to realize that what or who should be the Church's authority, and, and that's God uh, speaking through his word. Uh, and we can see that <clears throat> in play even today with those who want to reform the church in the, in the moral sense. The church should be, you know, the mission of the church is to feed the hungry and drill wells and be environmentally sound. But that's not what we find in scripture. You know, there are branches of the church that may be like the church has always been bending to uh, the philosophies of the world around them rather than to the authority of scripture so that is the question we should all have on our minds as we close out tonight is what or rather who should be the authority of, of the church and I hope we can all uh, say a hearty amen to, to God you know, the glory alone being to him as he speaks to us through his word um, so as we think about closing out the broad overview of the Reformation, what it was about. Looking forward to next month when we take a, a more detailed look at Luther, one of the uh, big players of the Reformation. I want to give a, a time now for you guys to ask any questions or make any comments for Sam or for any of us about Renaissance, about Reformation. Um, what, what has stuck out in your mind through this evening's conversation? I was, in some of the reading that I was doing, I know Erasmus was critical of Luther uh, for saying, saying sort of like the sola scriptura, but as I interpret it, you know, 
I, Luther, in other words, Erasmus criticizing Luther, saying, you seem to think you're the only person who can read Scripture and understand it, and it's what you say it means. Somebody, oh, I don't remember who this was. It's like the, the point is it's Scripture, not our interpretation of the Word. So my question would be, how do we guard against uh, glomming on to a particular interpretation of the Word versus the Word? The, the church had centralized authority. It became more and more narrow as you go up the chain and a smaller group of people uh, throughout church history, orthodoxy. Uh, the word orthodox means, you know, it's the idea is majority opinion. And so there were a number of theologians that would have open and healthy debate and that's how they came to truth before that, now it's much more, it is much more individualistic in nature. And some of the great things that happen all through history have unintended negative consequences, you know. And so it is difficult. But that's why it's especially important. Our elders recognize we're not connected to a denomination. So we're truly not accountable to any other body of believers unless we willingly hold ourselves accountable. And so we're constantly in touch with, while we, Sunday morning, you know, we use this um, reading from the Book of Common Prayer and from, that, that dates to the second, third, third particularly century. I said second. David tells me it's third. Um, but uh, so we're connected with what the majority of, but when power is concentrated in such a small group of people, and the Pope obviously has to answer to some people, but not many. And he can say whatever he wants to say or that small group of people say that he ought to say. And that's truth. You did have it right. Uh, the, the charge was leveled against Luther that, you know, you're saying any individual can, can misinterpret Scripture, read it for himself and misinterpret it. Uh, and his rebuttal to that was every individual has the right to interpret Scripture, but no individual has the right to misinterpret Scripture. And, and I think that, so the question still remains, how? How do we do that? Uh, well, but I, I, I'm not up on the context of that exchange between Erasmus and Luther, but what I do know about Luther is that he was not reading and interpreting in a vacuum. He wasn't truly by himself uh, because he was so well-read in the history of the church and he he was constantly interacting with others. So uh, I think it's a little bit uh, facetious to to think that or or to accuse him of of reading in isolation as if his interpretation were the only true. Now, he was obviously very opinionated. So when when he thought he arrived at the truth, he clung to it for better or for worse. Um, but but what, what we see is even Luther kind of taking his place uh, as a very influential individual and, and not the only individual in this movement. Uh, and, and really these, these, these people standing on the shoulders, as we're talking about, standing on the shoulders of those who came before them and then those who come after them building on them as well, re- rejecting the errors 
embracing what the church recognizes to be true. That's really how the church historically has always had to move forward is recognizing the truth when they see it. Uh, they might not recognize it for a while. I mean, it, it took a long time to, to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity. But when they formulated it, they recognized it. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the, the consensus here. Is that, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this class, is that the, the Spirit must illumine the reader of Scripture. And that can't be done, just like uh, Brad is fond of saying, theology is not done in a vacuum. It's always done in a corporate, uh, in a, a, a body, together as a church, corporately. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at church history is to see what the church fathers before us have thought about Scripture. Did they uh, get the orthodoxy correct? Did their practice follow what they preached? And if not, why not? Does that reflect some misinterpretation of, of Scripture? So we look back at how the, how the Spirit has illumined others, and so we can better see within our own local community that we can then work out in, in an open dialogue. Uh, we can study together. We have a plurality of elders leading us uh, into, the, into worship of various forms, and, and the primary of which being the, the study of Scripture, that um, the Spirit works in the individual, but he works in the individual when he's a part of the, the collective. And that's why church history is so important, is we can not only look in our our small circle here at Christ Community Church, but we get to look back centuries and even millennia at what other people smarter than us have thought and and see and match against the authority of uh, the question of authority. Do we cling to what that person has said or do we weigh what that person has said against what I read in Scripture? Does it make sense? Does it conform to what Scripture is, is clearly saying? And while some of you would like to stay two more hours, if we stay any longer, some of you will not come back next time. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. And thank you that even though uh, it was hijacked by many uh, through the ages, uh, you have always uh, revealed yourself to us uh, through your word. And we are grateful for these people who sacrifice so much to stand for the truth of the word that we're going to be especially reading about in the days to come. Thank you for our time together, for Sam uh, Brown joining us tonight and sharing from his heart things that uh, resonate with us and uh, we recognize our own tendencies to be king in our own lives and we desire to have you as king. Thank you for Bert's contributions and just everyone being here tonight. Go with us from this place. And again, we lift up Mark. Uh, serious three or four hour surgery. Some potential complications. We pray that you would superintend uh, for our, our young brother in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.